You cannot formulate good public policy because this has to occur in a political arena where there's a debate. If people do not know what the results of these subsidies were in the past, we cannot have a good debate. And that was the voice of Bert Folsom, professor of history at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. He and his wife and co-author Anita were here at the Acton Building uh, not too long ago to participate in the Acton Lecture Series. Bert delivering a lecture on the topic of their latest book, which uh, shares the title with his lecture, uh, Uncle Sam Can't Count. And we will be talking about um Uncle Sam and his problem with mathematics uh, in just a few moments uh, here on Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Hi, everybody. My name is Mark Vandermoss. Good to be along with you on our podcast today. As I said, we'll get to our interview with Bert and Anita Folsom in just a few moments. But first, uh, before we do that, I want to uh, bring to your attention a couple of events coming up here at the Acton Building in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you are in the area or want to make a little day trip out to Grand Rapids to take in a lecture... We've got some good stuff coming up, and uh, first of all, of course, I want to point you to our events page on the Acton homepage, acton.org slash events. There's a full listing of all the events that are coming to the Mark Murray Auditorium here in our Acton building uh, right there on that page, and I want to highlight two of them uh, that are coming up relatively quickly, so if you want to register for these events, please do so ASAP. First of all, April 16th, doors open at 1130 for a lecture by Wayne Grudem, and Barry Asmus, the, the topic for the day, The Poverty of Nations, A Solution. The topic uh, shares a title with the book these two recently released, uh, talking about effective solutions to world poverty. Wayne Grudem, if you're unfamiliar with him, he's widely known in the evangelical community. He's research professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary in Phoenix, Arizona, and past president of the Evangelical Theological Society, widely published author, general editor of the ESV Study Bible, uh, and uh, just a, a resume as long as both of my arms put together. Uh, Dr. Barry Asmus is uh, quite a, an in-demand speaker himself, senior economist with the National Center for Policy Analysis. He's been traveling and speaking to uh, government leaders, business leaders for years uh, in support of free market, low-tax, protected property rights, and free trade policies, and the author of nine books of his own. But he's going to be here with Dr. Wayne Grudem to talk about their latest book, uh, the Poverty of Nations, a solution. That's April 16th. Head to actin.org slash events to register. And uh, one other event that I really want to highlight coming up, uh, another big name coming to the Acton building, May 6th, doors open at 1130. The lecture starts at 12. George Weigel will be here talking about Pope Francis and the modern papacy, continuity and change. George Weigel, um, just a huge intellect. He is an American author and political and social activist, he is currently serving as a distinguished senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and probably best known as the biographer of Pope John Paul II with his magisterial biography, Witness to Hope, which is a fantastic book. Uh, and George Weigel will be here to give us some insight into his thoughts on Pope Francis and his papacy and the modern papacy in general. That will be taking place May 6th. Uh, doors open again at 11.30, lecture at 12, lunch is included, both these events, $15 regular price, $10 if you're a full-time student, uh, and we would love to have you come join us here at the Acton Building to take in uh, a lecture and feed your mind a little bit. Uh, that's what we want to do here at the Acton Institute, so do check out acton.org slash events and register today. 
Well, I'm joined today in the Acton Studios by a couple of guests today. Uh, Bert Folsom is with us here. He is Charles Klein Professor of History and Management at Hillsdale College, author of a number of books, including New Deal or Raw Deal and FDR Goes to War, which uh, he co-authored with his wife, Anita Folsom, who is also here. Um, so, Bert and Anita, I want to welcome both of you. Um, and Anita, I, w- I want to ask you right off the bat, you are the director of the Free Market Forum at Hillsdale College. Now, give us a little uh, thumbnail sketch of what is the Free Market Forum. The Free Market Forum began in 2006 to bring college professors from all over North America together to talk about free markets and why they work and how to teach uh, free market strategies in classrooms. So currently we bring in about 150 college professors in economics, uh, politics, history, other dis- disciplines, have a big conference in October, so, and we hold our conferences all over the country, and then uh, they receive information from top-notch speakers, thinkers from all over the world, and they go back and teach on their classroom in their classrooms on their campuses and uh, uh, further promote the idea that free markets are a blessing and, and really do work. Great organization, and I, I, I have to. Say, I went to the the website of the Free Market Forum. The first face that I saw that popped up on the website was Acton's executive director, Chris Maurin, and I, I was like, oh, well, I, I can't escape Chris. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. But uh, Chris is, is uh, Acton has had a role in in the Free Market Forum a little bit, hasn't he? Haven't yes, we? yes. When when we began in two thousand six, uh, we were uh, charged with. Uh, working in cooperation with the Acton Institute. And so Chris has been on our advisory board from the first, and we work with them. And this year, uh, the Acton Institute is handling a mini-grant program that coordinates also with the Free Market Forum. So we have a long working history together. That is wonderful. Well, I want to turn to both of you now, and I want to address really the elephant in the room here, because you're you're here today, and Bert, you're here to deliver a lecture as part of the Acton Lecture Series this year, and your lecture is, it bears the title of the book that you co-wrote with your wife, Anita, and the title is Uncle Sam Can't Count. Now, this is, um, really, I think any, any fair-minded person can understand, this is, a, this is a dreadful slander against our public servants. Are you, are you implying that our fine, civic-minded public servants in Washington, D.C. do not have the ability to do basic math? Is that the implication here? Well, there are about 18 trillion reasons that one can find that the math has not worked very well, uh, given what our national debt is. And a lot of this is caused by corporate subsidies and different kinds of individual subsidies that the government has given out that have simply failed and, in fact, been counterproductive, led to negative results. Not only they didn't work, actually led to negative results. Uh, amazing. So you're saying that that government intervention into markets sometimes actually has unintended consequences? Is that even possible? <laughs> Not a, well. Yes, uh, unless unless the consequences intended were to disrupt the American economy, I would call <laughs> I would call them unintended consequences. Well, one one never knows, I suppose, with the uh, the crop of politicians that we have now. Obviously, you, you've uh, you've written a book, and this in, entails, I'm sure, a lot of research about the various yes. interventions the government has made over the years. Now, uh, why don't you? I, I can think of the the prime example during the past, the the current administration. Let's say would probably be something like Solyndra, correct? Correct. Uh, where the government, uh, through the Department of Energy, makes an investment in a company that's going to manufacture solar cells, and obviously, it's going to change the way that we produce and consume energy, and it's going to benefit the world. And what happens? 
<laughs> well, it fails. It's $530 million total failure that the solar cells cannot be sold at a competitive price. It's, it's an inefficient form of energy. You know, uh, solar energy, uh, ethanol are, are being promoted today. And we, t- we have a chapter where we talk about this and, and Solyndra. And what we find is that Henry Ford, back over 100 years ago, put ethanol, had his gas tanks that could include ethanol or, or gasoline. And what he found, he, he loved the idea of ethanol. He wished it could have been competitive. Ford loved the idea that farm products could be used for things other than eating. He even had, Ford even owned a soybean suit. <laughs> I mean, that's somebody dedicated to trying to find other uses of farm products. I had not heard that one before. <laughs> he, he was pretty eccentric. Yeah, uh, he wouldn't eat chickens because he told people chickens ate bugs. And so Ford's very eccentric, loves agriculture, and he 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 wanted ethanol to work. He could never make it competitive. Gasoline was always, always cheaper because the processing cost, you, you grow the food, you process it, and that uses fuel, and that's so much more expensive than the gasoline. And so uh, Ford would have been happy to have had it work, and even today, uh, we would be happy to have it work if it were competitive. It's not. It has to be subsidized. Even with the subsidies, it's a failure. Solyndra is a classic example. What what are some of the – you talk about ethanol, and it, it, that's a topic that's been in the news recently with the start of the 2016 presidential campaign and the candidates, of course, making their pilgrimage to Iowa where corn is king. And one of the reasons that – or one of the ways that farmers in Iowa make money off of corn is through the ethanol subsidies that Washington – uh, provides and the requirement that a certain percentage of gasoline be be uh, be comprised of ethanol. Right. And um, so, of course, the news recently in the Republican end of the sphere was that Scott Walker sort of flip flopped and and he he bowed down to King Corn, you know, and said, "Oh, of course, I'm going to maintain these subsidies because that's what we have to do to get elected with the way that our system works out." What what happens though when you uh, there are other unintended consequences when you take a food product and you turn it into fuel. So what's happened to corn prices for food as a result of the government mandating that ethanol be used in gasoline and all of these subsidies to farmers to produce ethanol? Well, a few years ago, when all of the ethanol subsidies really went sky high and and some of the corn farmers were doing very, very well, we had bumper crops, but too much was going into ethanol. The price of feed corn went way up. Uh, If you remember in... 2009, 2010, the price of chicken skyrocketed. So if, if you were unlike Henry Ford and you like chicken, uh, ch- it, it made it very difficult for chicken restaurants. And, and uh, there are many of those, KFC, Popeye's, others, to, to make a profit. And the other thing that happened was the price of corn-fed beef went, went sky high. So when you have one segment of the economy subsidized by the federal government, that is a big problem. And what it does is it skews the economy and affects many other segments unfairly. How long has the federal government been sticking its hands into the economy doing this sort of thing i mean i I think most people have the idea this is sort of a modern phenomenon this is not something that that we did what you know the founding fathers the pure and wonderful founding fathers would never have uh considered or contemplated an action like this well we like the founding fathers very much but we even they were involved to some extent in corporate subsidies that's one of the sad things george washington was responsible for 
giving subsidies to the fur trade. We had a government-operated fur company. And as you might imagine, they became very stale. They, they, they insisted, because Indians are heavily involved, the Native Americans, in the fur trade. They trap the beaver and then bring the pelts to the forts and all of this. And the government-operated fur company was very inefficient. John Jacob Astor came along and became the first American to be worth $10 million. Uh, here's a guy who came over here, a German immigrant. His his father was a butcher. He comes over and he gets involved in the fur trade. And he makes it quite profitable. And so now we have the government competing against a private fur company, which is far more competitive. And the government fur company, in response, tries to put impose costs on Aster. You have to have licenses to trade with the Indians. You can't sell them certain products. The trade has to be restricted. All of this. Finally, in 1822, in, in May 6th, 1822, Congress voted to end the first subsidy. Isn't that exciting? We voted to end a subsidy. It actually happened, you're saying. This this is not just a dream. Right. Well, we, some people celebrate Cinco de Mayo. I think we should celebrate <laughs> Seis de Mayo, Anita and I think, because Seis de Mayo was the voting down of the first government subsidy in the United States. I'll see if we can uh, slide a sheet cake into the budget here at Acton and just have a little, <laughs> maybe just a little wine and cake soiree to celebrate. How much does the government waste on these sorts of subsidies every year? Oh. Yes. Well, let me put it this way. Since in the last 50 years, the two biggest sources of waste and responsibility for for growing the national debt are with the failures in the welfare entitlements and welfare program and corporate subsidies. We have 99 out of the top 100 corporations in some way or another, largest, are involved in taking corporate loans or corporate gifts. 99 out of the top 100. Right. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And so what we, in effect, what we have is a huge, some of it's hard to measure because they're, they're, they're couched as loans, land gifts, you know, things that are difficult to measure in cost. But they're the two forms that are the largest that we have today are, as I say, the welfare and welfare entitlements. And then these kinds of corporate subsidies. It started back at George Washington. It flows through. We had steamship subsidies, railroad subsidies for transcontinentals. And Anita and I talk about this in the book. Even an airplane. Most people don't know that we had a subsidy for the first airplane. Well, it, 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 I would I would assume that the export import bank falls into this as well oh. because uh, you're talking about airplane <laughs> subsidies. I'm a huge fan of commercial aviation and, and jets, but I also recognize that Boeing isn't exactly a, a standalone operation. Boeing receives over half of the subsidies in that are given out f- uh, in the export import bank, and the certainly that is is there, and we talk about that. I'm thinking even of the first airplane. We had a subsidy, not to the Wright brothers, but to Samuel Langley for the first airplane. We thought we're, we can pick winners and losers. We had to beat the British and the Germans to be the first with an airplane because mm-hmm. of the implications for military. And we gave that subsidy to Samuel Langley. He looked like he might be the best. Well, and not everyone wanted to give subsidies, but there were politicians who said, we, you know, it's always that uh, we have to be first with some sort of flying machine. So they came up with a subsidy for Samuel Langley at the Smithsonian Institute. And all of that sounds very good and proper, right? But what happened? The same as happens every time. There was huge waste Langley's ideas were not very good. Uh, He was a scientific expert and and renowned in various fields, and he was the head of the Smithsonian. 
But he went at this with a uh, a really first-class, spend-a-lot-of-money attitude. And his scientific principles that he followed in trying to invent a flying machine really weren't good. He built a catapult along the Potomac River. And he thought once he got his flying gadget going fast enough, it would just keep going for a while. And so he, uh, in 1903, very significant year, he launches his first uh, attempt after many years of trying to build one and wasting money, and at, back then tens of thousands of dollars. So he launches his pilot in this gadget over the Potomac, and it goes out and goes straight down. And the the pilot had to be fished out of the water before he drowned. Then he tried again, and the same result. And one of the newspapers of the time said, well, maybe Langley should work on inventing a good submarine. Because... Because his his uh, devices kept going underwater, and at the same time, instead in the in the eighteen nineties, two brothers out in Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, who were not married, they had stayed at home with their father, but they were very brilliant men. Particularly, uh, Wilbur Wright was very brilliant. Wilbur and Orville Wright they became interested in flying, but they wrote all of the experts of the day and asked questions and they read scientific magazines and they were encouraged to to build gliders first so they began going to kitty hawk north carolina now it makes people in ohio angry that north carolina <laughs> takes credit for the first in flight but that's where they went and they went to kitty hawk because kitty hawk in december in january had steady winds being on the ocean and it was extremely private the uh Wright brothers were concerned that someone would steal their ideas and and beat their patents. And so they go to Kitty Hawk, and with $2,000 of their own money and tinkering for four or five years, they have the first flight in December 1903, only nine days after Langley hit the Potomac. Just imagine what they could have done with a fat government subsidy, though. <laughs> and, you know, when, when, they were, when they were offered that later or when it was talked about, uh, Wilbur and Orville said, well, we never even considered accepting any government money. It was something we wanted to do. And, see, that's what would work, in our view, with ethanol. Why not use let private citizens do it and private money? Someone out there has the idea that would make – I believe ethanol or some of these uh, solar ideas much more marketable, but keep the government out of it because it will only be wasted money. Well, with all that said, we're in a we're in a pretty deep hole right now financially as a, as a nation. Uh, a lot of this has to do with our corporate welfare, in addition to other other expenditures that the federal government obviously undertakes all the time. Many of them wasteful. How do we? Is there a way out? of this circumstance? How do we start backing away from this subsidy culture that we've developed? What you have to get is a climate that recognizes that it doesn't work. And, and that's important because, see, a lot of this information is not available. I found most people have no idea that there ever was a subsidy for airplanes. You cannot formulate good public policy because this has to occur in an, a political arena where there's a debate. If people do not know what the results of these subsidies were in the past, we cannot have a good debate. So getting good information out there is part of the answer. The second part of the answer, I would say, is to simply have more of a loving of the Constitution and an obedience to the Constitution because corporate subsidies do not fit 
into Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution when you look at the powers of Congress and what our proper, the proper role of government is. And that's one of the main reasons we wrote Uncle Sam Can't Count. We felt that there was a glaring need for people to learn more about the problems with all these subsidies. As much as I like George Washington, even going back to the days of George Washington, when he didn't understand the problem of government subsidies. Nobody's perfect, we find, as we go back in history. The book is Uncle Sam Can't Count, written by Bert and Anita Folsom, both affiliated with Hillsdale College. And it's great to have you here today at the Acton Institute. We're looking forward to your Acton Lecture Series lecture. And, uh, Bert, when we get that, uh, we're going to get that posted online so everybody can see the full uh, the full argument that you're making here. But, again, uh, Uncle Sam Can't Count. It's going to be available at Amazon, all your reputable online booksellers, even some reputable offline booksellers, I'm assuming. And uh, to both of you, thank you so much for coming in today and talking with us here on Radio Free Active. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Well, that is our podcast, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you along on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I want to thank once again uh, Bert and Anita Folsom for taking time out of a very busy schedule to sit down with me here at the Acton Studios and to chat about their uh, most recent book that they've released together. Again, the title is Uncle Sam Can't Count. And if you want to pick up a copy of that book, you can find it at Amazon.com or other online booksellers. You could probably find it at your local bookstore, too, if you've got a good local bookstore. But again, thanks to uh, Bert and Anita Folsom for taking the time today. And uh, thanks to you as well for listening. If you know of anybody else who might be interested in Acton's podcast or the Acton Power blog, send them the link, blog.acton.org. And uh, do spread around the news about the podcast. Uh, We will keep producing good editions for you to listen to and share. And we hope you will be back again, once again, for the next edition of Radio Free Acton right here on Acton.org. Good day, everybody, and we will see you next time on Radio Free Acton.